0: Welcome to the Secondary Survey, the Irish pre-hospital podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Kevin
0: Gill. I'm Stephen O'Flaherty.
2: I'm John Mooney. And I'm Viv Ford. Welcome to this month's episode of the Secondary Survey. This month it's all about chest pain. Chest pain presentations or calls are probably one of the more common types of calls that we do attend. Now there are many causes for chest pain and not all are acute coronary syndrome or as we call it ACS. So in this episode we will be going through some of the causes of chest pain. Joe will be talking us through acute coronary syndrome. Steve will be speaking about costochondritis and esophageal rupture. Kevin will be telling us about pulmonary embolism and I will speak a little bit about aortic dissection. So first up it's Joe. Joe, come on, dazzle us with what you can tell us about acute coronary syndrome.
3: Thanks a million, Viv, and I will try my very best. I think dazzle is a strong word, but I will try my best. So, acute coronary syndrome, ACS, heart attacks. We have a lot of terms of them in the pre-hospital community. But how common are they? So as Viv was saying, they are extremely common for us. 6,000 people a year have heart attacks in Ireland. Irish women are seven times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than breast cancer. But up to 80% of all heart disease is preventable through lifestyle changes and modifying the risk factors associated with heart disease. So let's take it back though. Before you get the call as a community first responder or as a solo responder or on an ambulance to a chest pain call and you're the patient sitting at home, What are they feeling? What are the signs and symptoms of cardiac chest pain? So it's pain and discomfort in the chest, usually in the centre of the chest. But it can also radiate down the arms, to the jaw and around to the back. It's usually in the upper body pain, so they tend not to get leg pain or pelvic pain. It's usually in the upper all around the chest. They can get shortness of breath. They can get anxiety and this feeling of sense of doom. They can get nausea and vomiting and profuse sweating. They can be pale and they can just look really sick. Even when you walk into the house, you just know there's something not right with this person. I always say that if a patient is sweating, that you can never trust a sweating patient. And people can fake a lot of things. We can fake unresponsiveness, we can fake pain, but you can't fake sweating and a high blood sugar. So if the patient is sweating, they're sick. So what are the risk factors? Obviously, the older you are, the higher your risk factor. But men aged over 45 and older, and women aged 55 and older are more likely to have a heart attacks than younger men and women. Gender. Well, men are more likely to have heart attacks much earlier in life than women because of the oestrogen offers the women protection from heart attacks until after the menopause. But after the menopause, then women can suffer more heart attacks because the hormone drops. A family history. If you or your family members have a history of heart disease. Race and ethnicity. People from African Caribbean and South Asia have a much higher risk of heart disease. But what can we do to change them? So high blood pressure, control high blood pressure, control high cholesterol. Smoking is a major risk factor, as we all know from heart disease and to stop heart attacks. So stopping smoking and then having physical exercise as well, or the lack of, should I say, increases your chance. So having a good exercise session three or four times a week and then also being overweight and obese can increase your risk of type 2 diabetes. And then when you are diabetic, it doesn't produce enough insulin and it can cause your blood sugars to raise, which can in turn increase the likelihood of you getting a heart attack. So we get the call for chest pain. So what actually happens? So we get in our car as a community first responder or we get in the ambulance or the response car and we head to the call and we walk in and the patient is there in front of us and they're clutching their chest. They're profusely sweating. They have a pain in their arm. They have a pain going to their jaw. So they look really sick. So we do a quick history and the onset and it is radiating and how bad the pain is, we give aspirin. Community first responders all the way up to advanced paramedics and our consultant, colleague, doctors and nurses can give aspirin. So we give aspirin at 300 milligrams for the chest pain. And then the ambulance arrives. there we do a 12 lead ECG and we have a look and see if there's any elevation in the ST segment of the ECG. Well, also we have to think of the heart as a diamond. So and I think one of our very good instructors, Dave Irwin, teaches a very good way of understanding the heart. If the heart is like a diamond in a museum and our 12-lead ECG that we're looking at, the front and the lower left of the heart, is the security cameras. There's no security cameras on the right-hand side of the heart or the back of the heart. And that'd be the same in a museum, that if you weren't having 360 security of the diamond, someone could steal it. So if we have a look and we see that there's obvious elevation in the ECG, we can start contacting cardiologists in the CAT lab and we can actually Bluetooth the ECG findings directly to the CAT lab and they can accept the patient. And I think this is a very unknown and underappreciated skill that our pre-hospital colleagues and ourselves can do. I think it's a life-saving skill and I, I think it's massive benefit to the patients. But also, if there is certain elevation in some parts of the leads, we can do other ECGs. So for example, a right-sided ECG, which is common in 40% of inferior STEMIs. So what we can do is, we see elevation in V4, we take this sticker from V4 and we pull it in the same space on the opposite side of the patient's chest, and we turn that into V4R then. And that can give us elevation as well, and that shows that it's a right-sided STEMI. And we will be very careful with nitroglycerin there because they can be hypotensive, and we don't want to use the GTN and drop the pressure even further. Also what we can see is, we can see depression in V1, V2 and V3. So. Because depression isn't elevation, we have to go and hunt the elevation. So by hunting the elevation, what we can do is we can move the leads and do a posterior ECG on the same place on the patient's back. And if that comes up as elevation, then we can inform the CAT lab. Same as again, we Bluetooth over the ECG and give them a ring and explain the situation and inform them that we have found elevation on the posterior leads. So that alone is a massive benefit that we have real-time information being sent to our cardiology colleagues in the PCI. We can then give them, if it's not a right-sided STEMI, we can give them GTN. And then we also give clopidogrel or tricagolol. And we discuss this with the cardiologist, but usually the vast majority of the time, especially in Dublin, we give tricagolol because we're in the 90-minute windows that we need to get them to the CAT lab. Then on route to the hospital, we can cannulate the patient and we can give some morphine for the pain. The GTN can also be given if, again, as I was saying, it's not a right-sided. The GTN seems to work for a vast majority of people. Seems to be a fantastic medication. We then get them into the CAT lab. They can be assessed then by our cardiac colleagues in the hospitals. The Irish charity CRI, C-R-O-I dot IE, also has fantastic information on their website about cardiac conditions, heart attacks, cardiac disease, and also strokes if anyone does want to check it out. So yeah, so that's a quick whistle stop tour of ACS. So our aspirin, our GTN, our clopidogrel, our tricagalore, our ECGs, our posterior, our right-sided, and our Bluetoothing to the CAT lab and talking to our cardiologist colleagues, our risk factors, and how common it is.
1: Thanks a million, Joe. So now, can we just have a little quick chat about non-STEMI and where does that fit into the ACS paradigm?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So from a non-STEMI point of view, I think it's really important to say that Research recently in 2021 in America shows that 70% of ACS was non-STEMIs. And I think we need to be very aware that just because they might have a perfect ECG, but if they're symptomatic of ACS, that we have to go down and and treat them for same. So the idea that just because their ECG is perfectly normal doesn't mean that they're not having ACS and actually our higher chances of coming across a non-STEMI than we are a STEMI by 70%.
1: I mean, that's a very good thing for us to know, because how many times have you been handed a 12 lead and someone says, oh, they're not having a STEMI or they're not having a a heart attack? And you're like, yeah, but there is non-STEMI in there as well. So there is something that was written a while back by Scott Weingard and Dr. Smith and it was the only manifesto and we're going to put it in the show notes because it's a fantastic read but it basically talks about the evolution of uh heart attack recognition from q wave non q wave to STEMI and non STEMI, and now we should be looking to see if it's occlusive or non-occlusive so i think the point it should be that even though you might have a normal 12 lead until you get the bloods back unless that patient gets properly investigated they could be having an ACS. Do you agree with
3: that? Absolutely. I think until they get the troponin levels back in the hospitals and we suspect some sort of STEMI or non-STEMI, absolutely, I think we should be treating them for the worst case scenario. And then hopefully with the troponin levels, then they'll get a definitive answer. But absolutely, if they're meeting all the criteria, except for the 12-lead, I think putting resource on standby in the hospitals and treating like ACS, just because the ECG doesn't show it, I think is a fair way and a safe way and will benefit the patients in the long run.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one.
2: So I think something important to remember is that we have certain criteria to activate the CAT lab. And that is if there's evidence of ST elevation in any of the leads or left bundle branch block. Whether we have ischemic changes like ST depression in some leads, that is not a criteria for us to contact the CAT lab. Do you agree with that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It has to be elevation for the CAT lab to accept it. So if we find depression, though, there has to be elevation somewhere. So as I say, when you're looking for to shock someone in a cardiac arrest, you hunt the VF. I think we have to hunt the elevation. So if it's depression, there has to be elevation somewhere. So we have to go and find it. And if that means doing a posterior or a right sided ECG, I think we need to be looking for the elevation. And then I think that's fair enough then to ring the CAT lab and link in with them and then send 12 lead over via the server.
0: I thought something very interesting, Joe, on your talk on ACS, just about the medications we're using, so aspirin. But well, I know from down this way of the country, I think everybody must have aspirin in their house because by the time we get there, most people have taken it because it's part of the uh, AMPDS script that the controller are using at the moment, I think. Is that, that be correct to say, Joe?
3: Absolutely, yeah. One of the questions when you ring in for chest pain is if, if you have aspirin in the house to administer it. I think it's
0: probably important as well to re-emphasise the importance of aspirin. It's, it's a very good medication to prevent a potential ACS getting worse. It's got a quite a small number of need to treat. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a very useful medication. And the risk of giving somebody aspirin is relatively small compared to the benefit it will possibly give someone who's got a potential ACS event. I totally agree with that, yeah. And just something else, well you touched on inferior MIs and right sided mis and the use of gtn Can you just go through there exactly why we're worried about gtn
3: yeah so i think there's been a cautious approach to right sided of stemis with the use of gtm mainly because the preload on the on the right atrium and the right ventricle that if we drop the pressure too much they could bottom out on us so i think there's been a maybe a, an unhealthy fear of giving gtn to right sided i know in victoria ambulance service they administer it over 110 millimeters of mercury on the blood pressure and i just think we're probably a little bit cautious with it where if i'd be happy enough to give it if someone is massively hypertensive
1: now we're going to hear a little about costochondritis and esophageal rupture from stephen which hopefully will be as interesting as joe's piece well known joe
0: chest pain is a common cause of pain among patients be that in primary care pre-hospital or in hospital While we're always worried about acute coronary syndrome, it's important to remember that not all chest pains are due to acute coronary syndrome. In fact, only about 10% can be attributed to NACS. Why does chest pain present quite commonly as left-sided? And that really comes down to how the nervous system is, is wired, for want of a better word. In a sort of flaw of design, the free nerve endings from the visceral organs of the chest, so the heart, lungs, the esophagus synapse with the same interneurons in the spinal cord dorsal horn as those from the skin in the chest wall resulting in a referred pain for visceral organs that presents in a very similar to chest pain wall or skin pain and there lies the problem we face as clinicians trying to differentiate between acs and non acs causes of pain and trying to identify any acute life-threatening pathology i'm just going to touch on two brief common cause of chest pain that's not related to acute coronary syndrome, musculoskeletal and esophageal or GI type pain. One of the most common causes of musculoskeletal type pain, almost 30% of all chest pains we encounter in an ambulance can sometimes be attributed to a thing called costochondritis. That's an inflammation of the cartilage between the sternum and the ribs and it may be caused by excessive coughing, exercise or just general wear and tear. It can result in a sudden or gradual onset of sudden sharp pain in the chest often on the left and is usually unilateral the chest may be tender on palpation especially along the costochondral border typically affecting the second to fifth ribs lying down may aggravate it and normally pain will increase when the patient coughs or breathes deeply so touch on oesophageal causes If have to remember the anatomy of the chest the esophagus generally runs up through the thorax and it can be a cause of many a pain in the chest from relatively benign gourd or gastroesophageal reflux disease to a potentially life-threatening esophageal rupture. I'm gonna to just touch on the highest risk and perhaps not often seen or diagnosed pre-hospitally, the esophageal rupture. Sometimes also known as Borhav syndrome, it is a high mortality and a mortality that increases the longer it goes on diagnosed. Commonly caused by vomiting, it can also be caused by weightlifting, bearing down and childbirth or any other intraesophageal increase in pressure. We all know and love a good triad in the pre-hospital world so for esophageal rupture I found a nice triad called the Macler triad which basically highlights that patients with vomiting, chest pain and subcutaneous emphysema should be suspected with having esophageal rupture. It generally affects middle-aged men and also those who have excessive alcohol intake. We should suspect a ruptured esophagus with anyone who has sudden onset chest pain after excessive vomiting or any intra-esophageal pressure. It's important to remember your patient may have potentially sepsis markers, such as increased heart rate, and fever, with severe pain and very uneasy. Subcutaneous emphysema is one of the telltale signs for a ruptured esophagus, which is also common with pneumothorax. It's important when you're doing a patient assessment to rule out as best as possible any pneumothorax and to try and rule in, if possible, esophageal rupture with a good history and physical exam.
3: Yeah, Stephen, fair play. That was a brilliant overview of costochondritis. Just to let you know, from a personal point of view, I am a sufferer of costochondritis after a road traffic collision about uh, nine, 10 years ago at this stage. And the way you describe it, the central pain down the medial line of the rib cage is absolutely spot on. And it does happen all of a sudden. I would be woken up in the middle of the night with it. I take anti-inflammatories or painkillers. And yeah, I think the way you describe it really brings it home. And it is quite a severe pain when it gets bad. So I think now it, it was a very good hour for you, fantastic, pal.
0: Thanks, Joe. Just speaking of pain relief, what's the view on pain relief when it comes to chest pain? So obviously it's fairly clear cut when it comes to ACS, but what do we think about when it's not clear cut? Particularly when it comes to paracetamol. I know there was discussions as long as time time gone by about the use of paracetamol in chest pain. What's your view, I suppose?
1: Well, I mean, from my perspective on it, I really didn't really understand the evidence behind not giving it back. uh, I believe it was the 70s that came out. Maybe you'd be able to go through a little bit on that, Stephen. I'm not quite
0: old enough to remember the 70s. (laughs)
1: No, but you would have read the research.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I've yet to find uh, definitive research about the A or nay of of paracetamol. The only thing I found about it was a position statement from the Association of Ambulance Chiefs in the UK, kind of discouraging its use with regards to ACS. I know it was taught to us before in our paramedic course not to use paracetamol for ACS. But again, I suppose chest pain and ACS, are they're not mutually one may cause the other, but not every chest pain is ACS and not every ACS causes chest pain.
2: But I think it's important to kind of think of as well that you can't rule out ACS just because somebody has pain on palpation or pain on movement. The only definitive thing really that will rule out ACS are the troponin levels. We just have to be conscious that even though they have pain on movement and pain on palpation, That doesn't rule out ACS. Yeah, I think
0: that's that's a fair point. I think it's probably something that people have learned through experience, and I suppose from the many chest pains that we go to that aren't ACS, because I suppose as I mentioned, I think only ten percent or between ten and twenty percent, depending on the papers you read, of chest pains, and obviously depending on where in the world, etc., turn out to be ACS related. So. Kev will be the best man now to confirm, which this bias is, but I think it's confirmation bias, that if you go out to so many chest pains and of the last 10 chest pains you had that were tender and had increased pain and respiration, et cetera, et cetera, were non-ACS, then you kind of set yourself up as a confirmation bias, that sure that's the way it is. There are papers out there to show that there isn't very good sensitivity regarding tenderness or a pain on deep inspiration. And same with location of pain. Location of pain is very non-specific. So having left-sided chest pain or epigastric pain or right-sided chest pain doesn't really rule in or out ACS because lots of things can cause pain in different areas. And central chest pain is caused by lots of different etiologies. It's quite a hard one to put your thumb on, really.
1: No, but I think it it does just reaffirm that you have to have an open mind when you're going to every call and be aware, like you said, that you can fall into confirmation bias and an anchoring bias by your previous exposure. That can lead you sometimes to miss either valuable signs or to start a treatment modality that mightn't actually best fit the patient's clinical picture. Thanks a million, Stephen. That was a brilliant overview. Now, Kevin, it's your turn, pal. So I've got a huge job ahead of me now because I've got to cover a massive topic that in its own right could probably do with its own podcast and maybe we should look at that in the future. And I've got to condense this subject into a few minutes. So without any further ado, I am going to introduce pulmonary embolisms. So first of all, what is a pulmonary embolism? Well a pulmonary embolism is a thrombus that forms somewhere in the body. Most commonly it's in the lower limbs specifically above the knee and below the pelvis, which is kind of counterintuitive to what we're actually told because we're often associated with a DVT. But it turns out that most pulmonary embolism come from above the knee. So this clot breaks off and embolizes to pulmonary circulation. If a small blood clot breaks off, it can include a peripheral pulmonary artery. However, larger clots will include a main pulmonary artery. This can increase the pulmonary artery pressure, which can cause an increase in afterload with back pressure and can push the patient into right ventricular failure. And if it continues, it can even push a patient into left ventricular failure or congestive heart failure. These blocked arteries impair gas exchange as well, which means that it increases the dead space and also decreases pulmonary circulation. Now this increased dead space will actually, as hopefully I can show, might lead us to have a higher clinical index of suspicion in the pre-hospital field, but I'll go into that in a few minutes. Activated platelets in the clot can also trigger vasoconstriction in unaffected areas of the lung, which again are going to increase the dead space. So what are the findings or the clinical indications of it? Well, it's often clinically silent and reoccurrences are common. So when a PE is undiagnosed, mortality is about 30%. Now, that's quite a large number. But when you take into account that up to 50% of patients are undiagnosed, then you can get a magnitude for how serious this condition potentially can be. So what's its incidence? Its incidence in Europe is about 500,000 deaths per year. Now, we don't actually have any figures from Ireland, but Irish doctors are estimating that there's about 4,000 deaths per year from hospital-acquired VTE, or venous thromboembolism diseases, such as DVT and PE, and 1,900 of these are preventable. What are our risk factors for this? So we might have heard of Virchow's triad, which is hypercoagulability, venous stasis, so blood pooling in the vein, or vessel wall injury. Risk factors can be bed rest, particularly people who've been in bed for over three days, extended immobility, surgery, pregnancy, obesity, chemotherapy, contraceptive treatments, hormone replacement treatments, cancer, trauma, spinal cord injury, IVDU, greater than 60 years old, genetic factors, cardiac disease, nephrotic syndromes, and COVID which is quite a list to be fair. It's the leading cause of death in cancer patients and the direct cause of maternal death in the UK. So quite a lot to unpack with PE, which is why I'm saying it could probably do it with its own podcast. So what are the clinical findings for us or what will lead us to suspect a PE? Clinical features are as wide as the risk factors. So we have dyspnea, that's the most common cause, pleuritic chest pain, a cough, hemothesis, so that is leading on from the CCF component, tachypnea, dullness to percussion, or positive bronchophony. What is bronchophony? Well, bronchophony is a finding with a stethoscope. So basically, if you listen to someone with normal lung sounds and ask them to say 99, it will be muffled you won't really be able to make out the words. However, in places such as consolidation, so fluid or pus, increased dead space or collapse, if you get the patient to say 99 in that time or anything that they're actually saying, it's actually going to sound clear as day. So if you are listening to someone's chest and you ask them to repeat 99, you hear muffled breath sounds in a lot of the fields and then in one particular area you hear it clear as day 99 99 99 well then that's a positive bronchophony and that can be a sign of PE but it can also be a sign of pneumothoraces you know consolidation as I said or pneumonias. Another thing to be aware of with PE that can also lead us to suspect us and it's also evolved with the dead space, is patients who have normal respiration rates or near normal respiration rates but have symptoms of hyperventilation. So those pins and needles in their hands and feet and their arms are, you know, cramping up. So to understand why patients who have normal respiration rates have those symptoms of hyperventilation is again coming back down to the dead space. So if you have an increased dead space in the lung, there's little or no gas exchange happening in that particular part of the lung. And if it's a considerably large area, that is actually going to affect not only the oxygen coming in, but also the carbon dioxide coming out. So you can find that a patient might have a low capnograph or low capnography reading, such as anything below the 35 to 45. But in particular, between 20 and 25, there's something else going on with that. But because hyperventilation is so common, and particularly in patients that might be at risk groups, it's also something that can be missed or dismissed as something else. So if you do find a patient who's got symptoms of hyperventilation, has a low capnography reading, and fits into one of the risk factors, it might be worthwhile just to consider that it might be a PE. Another thing that we also have at our disposal, and we were all about using it, to various degrees depending on your scope of practice, is ECGs. Traditionally, we've heard of S1, Q3, T3, which for a point of interest is actually called the McGinn-White sign. And we're often thought that that is actually a sign of PE, which it is, but it's not as common as people might believe. So it actually only occurs in about 30% of cases. What are more common, are from an ECG perspective anyway, is sinus tachycardia but you'll also have rightward axis changes or right bundle branch blocks, which can manifest because of this. So again, if you had a patient who was quite tacky, you do a 12 lead and you see that there's a rightward axis or a developing right bundle branch block, again, it could be something that maybe you should take note of and maybe use as a consideration for PE. So we've established that maybe this patient may have a PE. So how do we manage them? Well, we have to be pragmatic. As I mentioned earlier, there is an awful lot of PEs that go unrecognized or unnoticed. So if you have a clinical index of suspicion, but the patient is stable, I would say pass that information along to the receiving hospital as handover. If the patient is unstable and you feel that the patient has a PE, well, follow the established CPG or the relevant CPGs that you have. Pre-alert, request ALS if you acquire it and you're not an AP. And uh, again, The important thing is getting that message across that you may suspect that this is a PE. So finally, after that, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to leave it to one of the other guys.
2: So Kev, before you take your break there now, I just want you to list out all the risk factors again for a PE. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't mind doing that. Just I'll have to hook myself up to 100% oxygen because I uh, ran out of steam on that one myself.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that, was, that was a great talk, Kevin. A big learning point for me is that you have the, the patient who has a normal work of breathing and respiratory rate, normal saturation rate. But they show signs of hyperventilation with the pins and needles in the limbs. But they will have lower than 35 to 45 millimeter of mercury ETCO2. That's a good thing to watch out for and it's a good learning point.
1: Well, it's something that I can clarify now as well a little bit more. So I mentioned in my talk that it was anything lower than 25 to 20. But what I actually found was that that was actually the PaCO2 and that was off a paper, Isolated Hypocapnia a sign not to be neglected, and that was about PaCO2 in the presence of PE with normal oxygen rates and all that. Entitle-wise, what I found was that from an entitled perspective as a screening tool to exclude PE, it's not great at excluding it. But it is very good at actually giving you an indication that it could be there. And the entitled value that was given in this paper, which we'll have in the show notes, was less than 34 millimeters of mercury. So, you know, with with an entitled reading of 34, a lot of people would have been reassured by that.
2: So it is important to highlight to the ED if you are suspecting a PE. And again, the only real definitive diagnosis in that would be a CTPA scan in the hospital.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that because, as I said, like a staggering amount of PE are actually silent. So if you have an index of suspicion on it, you're not going to look a fool if you come in and say that basically you think that this patient may or may not have a PE you might actually end up saving the patient's life.
0: Thanks, Kev. That was a great overview on pulmonary embolism. And now here's Viv to talk about aortic dissection. Thanks, Viv.
2: Right. I'm going to talk a little bit about aortic dissection. I don't know if they've become more prevalent in the recent couple of years, or does it appear that way because this condition is on our radar a little bit more? And are we more routinely including it in our differential diagnosis due to it being highlighted more on social media and internet campaigns? I know I've had a few cases in the space of a short period of time. Now, for those that are not familiar about aortic dissection, this is what it is. It's where blood enters the medial layer of the aorta and creates a false lumen. There are two types. Type A, which involves the ascending aorta, and that can extend distally, which will require surgery. Then there's type B. This involves the aorta beyond the left subclavian artery only. It's usually treated conservatively with blood pressure control and pain management. Now for me, I was surprised that aortic dissections are three times more common than that of ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysms. So let's go through some of the signs and symptoms and the risk factors that we should look at and include in our patient assessment. The Signs and symptoms would be your patient may have neck, back, chest or abdominal pain, often described as a sharp, tearing, ripping pain. You can have neurodeficits or numbness in the arms and legs you can have pulse deficits in the arms and legs and you can have bilateral blood pressure differentials as well. The history of collapsed patients should be high on your radar for aortic dissection. It can mimic a stroke at times due to limb paresthesia. Now usually these patients look pretty sick and even though their ECG can be normal, in some cases they may show ST elevation if the dissection starts at the root of the ascending aorta near the origin of the coronary arteries. It will show up as an inferior ST elevation because of the right coronary dissection, but these are extremely rare and they only account for 0.01% of cases. Now the thing to watch out for is that these symptoms may be transient in nature. The risk factors for aortic dissection would be patients with a history of hypertension, aortic aneurysm, those who have connective tissues disorders such as Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, patients with aortic valve disease and those that have a familial history of aortic disease. Now in the hospital environment there is not much we can do for the treatment. Perhaps gain IV access for potential resuscitation. Practice permissive hypotension between 60 and 90 millimetres of mercury systolic should your patient become hypotensive. As regards to TXA, it has been proven to be of little benefit for an aortic dissection in the pre-hospital environment, although the patient may get it further down the line if they're going for surgery and that's usually between 1 and 3 grams that they would get. If you are suspecting a dissection, it would be advisable to hold off on the aspirin and GTN for this patient, which may be problematic with regards to the aspirin as these patients may have taken it prior to our arrival or have been advised to take it prior to our arrival. Also, for us here in Ireland, a call to medical Cork at COH would be an option if you had any concerns or worries or just needed advice on how to proceed with your patient. I do think the most important thing for us is to recognise the possibility that our patient potentially may have an aortic dissection and that that patient is brought to the appropriate emergency department, ideally the vascular on-call hospital or one that has cardiothoracic surgery capabilities. For me, aortic dissection is always on my radar now for chest pain and non-traumatic back pain. Both my partner and I now do bilateral blood pressures and check for pulse deficits as a norm and it's always there in the back of our minds that this patient may have a dissection. So my message is always keep aortic dissection as one of your differentials for chest pain and non-traumatic back pain patients. Now, I'd like to add, even though bilateral blood pressure is still one of the recommended assessments for a possible diagnosis of aortic dissection, a paper in the last few years by Songwuk Um et al. in the Emergency Medical Journal assessed bilateral blood pressure differential as a clinical marker for an acute aortic dissection, and this paper suggests that blood pressure deficits, usually greater than 20 millimeters of mercury difference, is not as reliable as assessing the pulse deficits. I thought this was interesting and I would like to get some feedback from those in ED and those who specialise in cardiac and vascular medicine. There is also a handy detection tool that can be used, the Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score, ADDRS. This score is marked out at three and it's broken down into three columns. Column one is patient history, column two is pain features and column three is the physical exam finding. Now if the patient hits a mark for anything that's listed in those columns, they get a point for that. And a score of two out of three is an indication in a lot of hospitals that the patient needs an urgency T. This ADDRS tool is also on the MedCalc app. So if any of you have it, you should check it out.
3: Yeah, Viv, really enjoyed your talk there. I just asked about pre hospital ultrasound for the section you were saying that the type A and type B can be found in ultrasound. Do you, do you see a place for pre hospital ultrasound at all?
2: Well, ultrasound will only pick up probably a type A dissection, which would be the ascending dissection the transthoracic ultrasound really doesn't pick up the type p which is then the descending aorta so wouldn't be very reliable Mm. also you'd have to be pretty proficient and well used to using ultrasound for a number of conditions before i think you'd be able to kind of positively say that this is an aortic dissection this isn't a dissection the definitive diagnosis is definitely a ct for a dissection
3: That's fair enough. Yeah, that's it. Good point. Yeah, fair play. I think
2: the important thing about aortic dissection, again, as I was saying, there's no real pre-hospital treatment for it. The most important thing is the recognition of the possibility of a dissection because it is very underdiagnosed as per UK stats. We don't have any stats here in Ireland. There's 60 per million in the UK, 2,000 die each year of an aortic dissection and 33% of those are actively treated for the wrong condition. There are about 4,000 cases per year. 3,000 would be type A and the 1,000 then would be type B. So it is a time-critical intervention and half die before they even reach the hospital. 500 die after reaching the hospital due to failure to diagnose the dissection. And it's very treatable. If it is detected and treated on time, the survival rate is greater than 80%.
1: And where do you sit with pain relief? So obviously enough with our pain relief strategies that we have, I mean, they're very dependent on blood pressure in a lot of cases.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. So if, as you mentioned, the the hypertension in dissection, so will given medications like morphine or fentanyl benefit the patients?
2: Well, if their blood pressure permits it and they are hypertensive, morphine is quite reasonable to go with if they are in quite a lot of pain. But the pain can be very transient. But I would go with personally morphine, again, depending on the patient condition and their blood pressure.
3: So Viv, this is obviously a condition that affects people from all walks of life and all ages. Does it impact on pregnant women at all? Or would you know the percentages that it does if it does?
2: Aortic dissection does account for 11% of maternal deaths. And it's usually in the last trimester or the first few weeks postpartum. And it's due to the hyperdynamic state of a pregnant woman and the hormonal effects on the vasculature. So, again, it is a fairly high mortality rate. Yeah, I was just think thinking
1: about that. It's, it's yeah. actually very high. I, I was expecting you to say maybe, you know, 1%, 11% is a pretty yeah. staggering number, you know.
2: Yeah, Reading up about more dissection and kind of having had maybe three or four of them in the last two years, because I'm more aware of it, it's kind of in, on, you know, it's on my radar more. And I'm wondering throughout my career, how many chest pains did I kind of just say it's, it's non-STEMI or it's STEMI and didn't even have aortic dissection on my radar, you know, and how many patients that I possibly had over 16 years did have a dissection when just weren't, we weren't aware of it.
1: Well, in fairness, you bring me back to a paramedic or an advanced paramedic in another statutory service that had this conversation with myself and a few students. And his idea was that, or the question he posed to us was, have we ever killed a patient? And everybody kind of went, no, no. And he goes, I guarantee you have because you've killed someone because you didn't know something. And that sounds fairly dramatic. But when you actually think back to what you just said, you know, it's kind of proof of the pudding. How many times do we dismiss a potentially serious finding as just a normal variant or they're stressed or, you know, this looks like a STEMI or a non-STEMI or whatever? So it just does reinforce mm. the whole. It would make you think all right, it, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, that's a brief overview on chest pain and the many causes of it. Thank you for listening and hopefully you join us for our next podcast next month. Bye. 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 Bye.
1: Take care. Hasta la vista.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'm keeping that in. (laughs) Yes. absolutely.
0: (laughs) All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols thank you for listening take care